All right, good morning. Let's uh, flip over to Acts chapter 12. A couple of announcements uh, that I'm going to make while we're turning in there just to... uh, One is kind of somewhat informational. If you may have noticed that uh, there are mushrooms growing on the side of the building. It's not that we have neglected or do not care about that. It's that we live in Pack County. And uh, we've been looking for a contractor to do that. So we, we got one. And then they called us back. And then we got an estimate. And then they called us back. And we scheduled it for next year. So... It's in the works. If you see the mushrooms, they bother you, just pick them off, it's fine. Uh, but it's, we're not trying to neglect the building, it's just been a challenge to try to find someone who would show up and do it. So uh, all that to say is they're going to be doing that side and the whole front and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, uh, I just want to let that out. I know there were some concerns about that, and we're not going to let it go to pot. All right. Uh, secondly, uh, yeah, we, it's, it's great stuff. We have the, the kids' ministry, and we're excited about that. So as if you remember kind of the evolution of what's occurred here with the COVID rules and how we've done it way back in, was it Mar or May when we got to meet again, uh, what we did is we had all, uh, everyone wore a mask, everyone did everything. We had the, the rows blocked and all that kind of thing. And what we found was that because there is such a spectrum of um, how people are approaching COVID and I'm not making any commentary on one side or the other, uh, but due to the large spectrum of that, what we found was that people uh, with uh, compromised, legitimately compromised health or people just didn't feel comfortable, even when we had everything in place, um, and with, with all the respect, they didn't feel comfortable coming in, which I wouldn't either. I mean, at the end of the day, I know some people say, oh, it's all bogus, there's nothing to it. But then I know a lot of people in the EMS industry, and guess what they're tra- transporting? They're transporting a lot of people with these viral infections that have huge lung problems and stuff like that. So well, I'm not trying to poo-poo anyone. I can't get on board personally with the it's non-existent uh, because there's been an uptick in runs. And I know the people that are making those runs and people that go to our church, and they're not like making that up for some global conspiracy for it to make a virus up. So I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just trying to say where we're at. So uh, what happened was, is we still, there, there wasn't a big um, uh, return with all everything in place. At that point, right around mid-May, I believe, or late May, uh, our sheriff, the Pacific County Sheriff, Robin Souvenir, released a, a, pl- a press release that said uh, that the Pacific County Sheriff's Department's response to the governor, uh, our governor's mandates were that they were taking an an educational response to it uh, and that their um, enforcement would be purely educational. So meaning we're not going to, we're going to educate people. We believe our citizens can fend for what they want to do, essentially is what it said. So then we decided, okay, if our sheriff is taking that approach, we're going to take that approach. And so as staff members and as volunteers, we mask up. Um, Every once in a while, a handshake, I think, gets snuck out there. Uh, but for the most part, we're trying to you know, honor what our government has said and honor what our God has said and kind of walk in that. So now that we have, uh, there's certain elements that we've, we've kept strictly to it uh, for ourselves. Our, for example, our food is prepared by people that are masked up and gloved up. Um, it's the sanitization is happening, all that kind of stuff, right? Because we're trying to adhere to what the government asks of us. So in the same manner, now that we've opened our kids' ministry, I wanted to let you guys know that we're being serious about what the government says we have to do back there, okay? And, in, and for the most part, it's that we want to be safe. Uh, two, we, the government hasn't asked us to do uh, anything that's contrary to the Scripture. Uh, not, we're in phase three. We can meet. You know, they haven't told us we can't use the Bible. They haven't told us that uh, we can't, uh, you know, whatever. Fill in the blank. So everybody feels different about this. But we're, in this case, with the kids, you'll notice our teachers are gloved up. Our teachers that handle your kids are masked, are, 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 excuse me, masked up. They're, that they're handling the kids in any way. They're gloved up. They're socially distanced at their tables. They get to keep their own little box of things that get sanitized, and it goes back to that same kid the following week. So we're doing everything that we can. With that, we are taking the children's temperatures with the infrared guns that we have. Uh, there's been some concern about the infrared guns. I did a little bit of research on it, and 50% of the sunlight that we receive every day is infrared. So when an infrared beam goes over your forehead or your wrist, you're getting significantly less infrared light than you ever would 
from going outside and having a cup of coffee or if your kid drinks orange juice or whatever. So we are taking temperatures. We are using hand sanitizer. We will sanitize your kid's hands. I'm not saying this to be a jerk. I'm not saying it because I hate essential oils or anything like that. <laughs> I'm all for essential oils. Uh, you know, it's, 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 got, it's because this is what the government says we have to do. And I've been using hand sanitizer for the fire department. I'm not in anymore for the last 10 years. I still have all my fingers and toes. Uh, and I don't think we have to be that concerned with it. That being said, there are different opinions, okay? And that's, I don't, I'm not mocking any of those opinions. But if you feel, if your conviction is, I don't want to normalize uh, a gun-shaped object being pointed at my child's head for them, I'm not willing to do that. That is fine. That is 100% fine. Respectfully, your child cannot come into our kids' ministry because that's what we are adhering to. And the reason that we're adhering to that is because should the government come, what you do is up to you. But we should something happen and we have an outbreak, we want to be able to say we followed every single rule. We did everything we were supposed to do. And that's not only for our children's safety, but it's so that we can continue to meet publicly. Now, I realize that one day we will not be able to meet publicly. Me personally, I think that that's closer than it is farther. That's just my own opinion. We'll continue to do it as long as we can, but I think that the honest-to-goodness truth is that the future for us in the next maybe 20 years, maybe less, maybe 10, is going to be home churches and just people meeting and getting together in that way. But that, and that's fine. And when the government comes along and says, hey, you can't say certain things about sexuality, you can't say certain things that the Bible says, then that, you know what? We'll split up, we'll go to home groups, we'll worship Jesus until they come and burn us at the stake. And that'll be fine. It's just the way it'll go. But for now, we're sanitizing hands, we're checking temperatures, and we're trying to move forward to still be able to meet as a collective. So, and I, uh, again, I'm not making an apology. My wife always tells me I'm too intense, but I'm merely trying to announce it in a matter-of-fact way. And the truth is that we do love you, we do care about you, and we're not mocking any other opinion of those things. Does that make sense? All right, cool. Acts chapter 12. So this is now the third week we've been in Acts chapter 12. I say that unapologetically. And we will probably be in this for another week. But if you recall, three weeks ago, we started and we looked at the, really just the question of why and how. Bad things happen, right? Because in the beginning of chapter 12, what do you have? You have James being slain for his faith and Peter being delivered in his faith. And that, that brings up a lot of questions of why that has to happen. Jesus addressed a lot of those questions. Some, some opinions become, well, if you're extra sinful, bad things will happen to you because it's judgment. Sometimes we, it's kind of weird sometimes how we kind of equate who's righteous, who's not righteous. There's whole teachings that would say, uh, if you're sick, then you're in sin. If you're not rich, then you're in sin. If, you're, you know, if bad things happen to you, then it's because of your sin. Whereas Jesus made it very clear for us as he's speaking in the Gospels, and he says, hey, look, do you remember all those people that died because the Tower of Shalom fell on them? 18 people died. He says, do you think that they are more sinful than anybody else? No, they were not. They were just standing somewhere or they were in something when it fell and they died. Bad things happen. And then I don't think we could go to a place and say, well, it's a random bad thing per se, but it's just a bad thing that happened. We looked at the fact that the reality is many of the sufferings that we endure are caused by our own or other people's sin, right? In our sin, we have caused suffering for others, and in other sin, they have caused suffering for us, whether it's rudeness, whether it's neglect, whether it's assault, whatever it might be, sin is the bulk, it's the mass reason for the bad things that happen in this world. Not obviously everything can be attributed to sin, except for the fact that the world is fallen because of sin. Now, having gone through that, we also uh, looked through the passage but didn't talk about the, the positive side of it, and that is that Peter is delivered. It's easy to focus on the negative, at least for me, the fact that James was slain, especially because his name was James. I mean, let's be honest. But, no, but, so you have this, but the fact that Peter's delivered, that he has this miracle that occurs. And even in the miracle that occurs, there's why to be asked, and how does it go down? But then when we looked at, begin to look at this, as, we, uh, as Peter is brought out of prison, there are just some points, and this is what we looked at last week, just some points about how it worked when Peter was brought out of prison. Uh, like, I, like I said, I'm not a big 
title person, but if I were to title this, I think I'd just call it Peter's Guide to Freedom. And there, here's some, here's some of the points. Well, we'll read it first, and, and then we'll get into the, the points we made last week. Uh, chapter 12, verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the, uh, excuse me, and two centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put, your, uh, and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know uh, that, that, was, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now last week we looked at two points. One was from verse 6, and just the simple idea of go to sleep chained to someone else. And the point there, allegorically or metaphorically, being learning to be at rest. And we talked about the fact that the bottom line is that even when we first get saved, there's a peace that, the, through the Holy Spirit that can flood our hearts, and there's a, a relief of the forgiveness of sin, and, and all these, if you will, kind of spiritual feelings that occur, oftentimes, right? But then true relationship comes over time, like any relationship. No one throws their wallet on the table at and, and Starbucks and then goes to the restroom, Right? You pack your bag, you put your cell phone in your pocket, you put your wallet in your pocket, and then you go to the rest. You just leave it out there because you don't know any of these people. You don't know what's going to happen. You lock your door at night. Why? Because you don't know everybody, and you don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's that all these things that we do is mistrust. We mistrust people. And, it's, and, and not to say that we should trust everybody, but it's just kind of how our society operates. And so also with God, once we get saved, we begin to have an experiential relationship with him, or at least we have the option of that. And the more that we allow God to work in our hearts and in our lives, we experience his fidelity, we experience his work and his spirit, and then we begin to trust him. Peter, although having a life uh, of both victory and defeat, of walking on water and sinking, of preaching the gospel and 3,000 people getting saved, and then being withstood to the face by Paul and said, you're being a hypocrite, Peter had a life of experience. For, you know, denying Jesus three times, being reinstated by a campfire on the beach three times. He had experienced God, and so he comes to this particular place the second time he's been in prison, and what does he do? He racks out. He goes to sleep. Again, it's just like we said last week, we're not just saying, you should go to sleep if you're having hard times, or you should just have peace, because that's not real. That's not how, how human beings work. But instead to say, I have walked with God. I'm inviting His Spirit into my life. I now have this peace that defies understanding, and I can be at rest in this place. This whole teaching, this, these two segments, the two Sundays that we've done, really revolves around the idea is that life, for the most part, with Jesus, it's, it's a journey. It takes time. It takes experience. It takes being forgiven. Now, there were examples. The thief on the cross, well, his life experience was like three hours with Jesus. But in three hours, what did he experience? Forgiveness, comfort, promise, right? And so he came to a place of mocking Jesus, to a place of receiving Jesus, to a place of experiencing Jesus, right? So no matter how long the length of our walk with Jesus, it really works the same. Not to say, not just counting miraculous times or something like that, but that, that Peter comes to this place of being able to rest because he's experienced Christ both in the high times and in the low times as being faithful and being kind and of taking care of him. Then in verse 7, we read that command, and he says there, the angel says, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and, uh, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off. The chains were still on when the command went out. And that's important. And this is something I've been thinking a ton about, actually, in, in, in my own life and in the Scripture and things like that, uh, and even though I worry about being too repetitive with things, that here's this deal. So many of us are, I could, well, us maybe, I don't know where you're at. I don't want to 
accuse somebody of something they're not doing. But for many of us, we're kind of in this place where we're sitting on the couch of our spiritual life and we're just waiting to be different. And you can take any sin. It can be anxiety. It can be anger. It can be unforgiveness. It can be, uh, uh, I don't know, covetousness, lust, whatever it is. And we're just kind of sitting on the couch and God is speaking to our hearts and he's saying, get up and walk with me through this. And we're just going, when I feel different, then I will walk with you. When you take these chains off or I feel like these chains are off, then I will stand up and obey you in the thing that you've called me to do. And honestly, it's the complete opposite of how sanctification works. Sanctification does not usually work in the sense that one day I just don't want to sin anymore. I just wake up, I have that magical cup of coffee where I get my cream and coffee mix just perfect, and then all of a sudden there's a halo, and I just go, you know what, God is so good, I'm never sinning again. That's not the human experience. The human experience is not to try to quit when we're behind. But in fact, what we do is we say, this is the last porn I'm going to watch. This is the last time I'm going to do this. I feel like I have to watch this, this comforts me, I'll just do this, and then I'll be done. This is the last drink I'm going to have. This is, I'll, I'll forgive that person later. I'll stop worrying about, if I don't worry about the stuff in my life, then who will? Someday God will just make me not worry. Some guy, someday I'll just stop lusting. Someday I'll just stop coveting. I'll keep neglecting church. I'll keep doing what I want to do to make sure that I'm financially taken care of. And then someday God will just make me not worry about that. And then I'll move on with my life and I won't worry about that. But that is never how humanity works, is it? And it's weird because like sometimes whether it's slaking a lust or whether it's trying to slake an anxiety by indulging in a, a, a you know, three-hour internet search of why I'm right or whatever it might be, it always comes back around. I always get anxious again. I'm always fear, fear, filled with fear again. I always re- reject forgiveness uh, for someone again. And so one of the things that we have to realize is that God is calling us to a supernatural walk to get up to leave that stuff behind, not worry about the chains that are upon us, the besetting sin which so easily entangles us, as Hebrews tells us, but to stand up and begin moving in the direction that God is calling us. And the promise is when we begin that move, that's when the chains come off. It's not just by sitting around hoping that one day that they will. So today we're going to pick up in verse 8, and we're going to talk about a few more points here that Peter shows us through metaphor about how we can be victorious Christians, and begin our walk towards freedom. And it says there in verse 8, And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And it's a little bit of the same idea. And it's this. He says, You know what? You need to dress yourself and you need to put on your sandals. You have to get ready for the miracle. You have to be prepared for it. Am I saying that God never does something supernaturally that we don't expect it? No, I'm not saying that. Am I going to put God in a box and say, he'll never do anything great unless you do this? No. He's so mighty and he's so merciful, and I have to admit some of the most humbling blessings that have occurred in my life have not been at times of obedience, but times of disobedience, times of rage, times where I feel lost and upset with God or whatever it might be. But what I am saying is that on the daily, if we want to see ourselves get changed, if we want to walk in all that God has for us, we can't just keep sitting back and doing nothing about it. In this case, he says, hey, you need to be clothed. And the, again, to kind of go back to the why question, why didn't the, he just snap his fingers and make him clothed? Why did he say, put your cloak on too? Why couldn't he carry his cloak? What if Peter had just said, hey, I'll put my clothes on, but I don't feel like carrying my cloak or wearing my cloak. I'd rather carry it. Don't we do that with God? God says, hey, I'd like you to do this. We say, well, how about this instead? You've asked for A, but I'm willing to meet you at B, and I'm definitely not doing C. So I know you want me to put the cloak on, but I don't know what the weather is like outside. I don't even know if I'm actually even being made free right now. I kind of think this is just kind of a vision of what could happen. So if I put my cloak on and the guards see that, and then I try to move out. Like They might be upset at me. I could get a whooping for putting the cloak on when I shouldn't. I know you, you dropped the chains off, but it just feels, I mean, is it wool? Is it scratchy? I mean, I don't know if I really want to do this. Isn't it just better if I just carry it? I know you said to do that, but I think it'll be better if I just carry it. Who's it going to hurt if I just carry it? I mean, what do you care, angel? You got sent here to serve me. I'll just carry it. And that's how we treat God. You've said this. You've asked me to do this. 
But you know what? I'll go, I'll meet you halfway, but I'm actually going to insist on this. And what happens is we do that sometimes, and then we come back and we retreat to this place of go and say, why isn't all that I want my life to be what it is? Why isn't God doing everything in my life that I want him to do? Why am I not being changed? Why is it that, that these things don't work out in my life? Or even worse, you get outside, it's freezing cold, and you go, God, why didn't you tell me it was cold? I would have put my cloak on. But because he didn't tell us the reason, we reject the way. And, it, and it's, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? When you see that in yourself, when you see that in others. One of the things that he's calling us to do, if we're going to experience freedom on the daily, we have to do what he calls us to do. We have to respond to it. In this case, he says, clothe ourselves. If you flip over to uh, Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13, towards the end of the chapter, there's much more detailed passages about this, but for time's sake, we're not going to turn there. But if you'd like, you can read Ephesians chapter 6, which is where you get into the armor of God and so forth. But for us, we're going to stick to Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13 and in verse 8, this is kind of a, uh, the beginning of some practical, uh, practical ways for, our, for us to express our walk with Jesus and to experience what he has for us. In chapter 13 and verse 8, he says, no, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall, com- shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So Paul here, the whole book of Romans, the beginning I should say, chapters uh, 1 through 8, and even partially nine, are essentially the, the how salvation works. And we've talked about that, I think, last week. But how salvation works. Then in chapter nine, he gets into what he's still doing in Israel, that he's not done with Israel, and he's going to work in Israel in the last days, that last seven years, that 70th week of Daniel will be where God begins to again work in and through Israel. Then you get into chapter 10 and 11, and it talks about, uh, actually chapter 11 is the Israel chapter, 9 and 10 talking about salvation. Chapter 12, he starts getting very practical. 13, 14, 15, 16 are kind of practical behaviors and mindsets that we can have to walk with God. Having said that, in the beginning here, he makes this very point, and again, verse 8, it's not the idea that you can never have any kind of debt, but the idea is to not sin against people to owe them. In other words, don't owe them anything a debt of love. That we're, that we're those, that the debt that we have is to love God and to love people. And I want to mention this again, not because I want to minimize the value of the Word of God. The Word of God is invaluable. And as we said last week, the, the, the Word we have here in our possession is very trustworthy. But Paul boils it down again. Here he's about to talk about, and he's in the middle of talking about all these practical things, and he makes the point there in verse 9. He says, he lists all the thou shalts, and then in the end he says, uh, the, the, they're all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not do wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And then he's going to go on to the, part, the second part that we read. But the point is this. The, all that his God has called us to it boils down to this. Loving God and loving our neighbor. And it's very appropriate since realistically, I, you know, it's a fascinating read. If You, you can look up uh, on the interweb all the fancy... Uh, studies that are done, everything like that. But the bottom line is that scholars mostly believe, and we mentioned this last week, I've been thinking about it a ton, that the scripture wasn't in every home until like the mid-1700s in America uh, to the mid-1800s. That's when Bibles became family Bibles and stuff like that. Because until 1430 or 48 or whatever it was, they were all hand-copied. So a church was lucky to have one, right? There was no, you didn't get up in the morning and have devotions, that was impossible. There was no Max Lucado books. 
There was no daily breads. There was no emails from Caleb. There was none of that existed. None of it at all. And I'm not putting those things down. I'm not saying we shouldn't have those things. They just didn't exist. You got up in the morning and probably had nothing from the scriptures. Maybe you got access to one of these letters that you were able to hand copy if you could read and write, which especially through the Middle Ages, not very many people could do. If you were poor, you couldn't. But you know you could do every day? You could evaluate, am I loving my family today? Did I love my wife today? Did I love my children today? Did I love God today? Did I worship Him today for my salvation? What I heard from the priest or the pastor or whatever you had, because not everybody had a Protestant church to go to. Am I endorsing the Catholic church? No. Am I minimizing the Bible? No. I'm just saying that it made it really easy, doesn't it? I should, this is my measurement. Did what come out of my mouth tell that person I love them? Boom. I've either fulfilled the law or I have forsaken it. When you look at it that way, it really sucks, doesn't it? Because all of a sudden you're like, whew, that's, love is a tough standard. But so he's, he boils it down to this. And why am I bringing up this again? Because this will decide if I'm ready for the miracle, if I'm ready for freedom. If I don't operate in love for God and then others, I'm hindering God's work in my life, and I'm hindering his kingdom. It's like that easy. John wrote a whole letter about it. If I say that I know God, and yet I continue, and I, and I, and I just walk in sin, I'm a liar. If I say that I know the truth, but I don't love my brother, I'm a liar. He's not saying I'm not saved. He's not saying you're not saved. He's saying you don't know him. You don't have a relationship with him. So in this preparedness, the idea of putting on my clothes, the idea of being ready for the miracle, first and foremost, Paul in this introduction here is saying, look, we have the whole thing, everything we do is, is wrapped up and equated to this. Is it love? Is am I doing that thing which is going to motivate and bring my fellow human to know God and to help them? That doesn't mean there's not hard words in love, but they're hard, they're hard words said in love. And then he's going to go on. He says this. Besides this, besides this is what you're called to do. Love, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake out of sleep. In other words, you know, what does sleep represent? Obviously, obviously he's not saying, hey, we should never sleep again for the next 2,000 years. Clearly, this is a metaphorical statement. And he, what he's saying here is that we need to awake out of, a, out of a mindset that is tired, that is not paying attention, that is unaware, that is uh, not that sleep is necessarily lazy, but the, it's, it's just that, you know, when you wake up in the morning, or some people when they wake up in the morning and they're kind of hazy, kind of like, where am I? What's going on? He says, we have to get out of that as Christians. Not to go fight the man. To love people. Notice his, his application comes before the, the encouragement. The encouragement of waking out of sleep is to accomplish the, the application. To love people. That's what we're awakening to, to be a part of what God is doing. And I tell you, the, the coronavirus, in some respects, and even maybe some of the political you know, shenanigans that are going on from both sides of the aisle and all of that, it can really bring us to a place of discouragement, a place where you, just, you feel like, is there, I don't want to wake up. I don't want to deal with this. I don't know how to deal with this. A, you know, just that radical discouragement that can come from all these things. But the, the, uh, as he keeps going on, he says this, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. So there's an encouragement. Your salvation, and it doesn't have to be just heaven, but an actual changed life as God is changing us, a sanctified life, it's nearer now than when we started. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. See, God is not done working, regardless of what government we have, regardless of what the world is doing, regardless of what viruses are doing, regardless of what the neighbors are doing, regardless of what is going on in Portland, regardless of what any of that. God is still working. He's still moving. He's still leading. He's still guiding. He's still changing. Right? None of this is, is done. He's going to go and he says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, verse 12. Uh, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So the first reference there to putting on, we'll keep going. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. 
over and over again, whether it's in the Romans or it's in Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians and all these different letters for the most part, this idea of taking off and putting on in, in true relationship to the idea of a jacket are used for our walk with God. The idea is I have this two, we have the kind of this dual nature now, right? This is probably not news to many of us, but we have these two natures. We have the Holy Spirit that God attached to our soul when we got saved, and the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> Spirit through friends and His words, His word, I should say, is leading us. And sometimes I think through supernatural input where God actually speaks right to your heart. He's leading us. And sometimes He leads us in very difficult ways. And He says, he says things that are very hard to deal with things that we don't want to do, but that ultimately will lead to life because that's who we know God to be. And then we have our fallen nature, Satan, and this world, right? Kind of this other evil trio, if you will. And I don't know, and this is something I've wrestled with for a long time, I don't know if Satan can actually speak directly into your heart. I've heard some people say he can, some people say he can't. I, I don't, he's not omnipresent, uh, so I don't know about that. But I do know that somehow he seems to influence me sometimes. Whether he's able to do that or not, whether it's the, the people that are around me or something that I read or something that I watch or whatever it might be, uh, that he is able to influence. And sometimes he does seem to bring people around right at the right time. Uh, and, and I don't know how he encouraged them to do it, to, to really slap you when you're down or whatever it might be. But we have these two influences, and not to mention our own flesh that still longs for certain things that, that we think, or the old nature thinks that will satisfy us, that they don't. And we have this thing, and now we have to decide, who am I going to listen to? Who am I going to heed to? Am I going to heed to my flesh? So it's interesting that we're told to put off the old, we take it off. We don't let it affect us anymore. We don't keep it on us. We don't let, we don't let you know, if you have a jacket on, it keeps you warm, it keeps you dry, you know, whatever it might be. There's impacts that that jacket has on your life. And so it is with this fallen nature and with Satan. If we keep that on, if that's our clothing, if that's our identity and who we respond to, what we listen to, what we react through, then it will always reap death to us, right? It always will. It will always keep us from freedom. The funny thing is, it may feel like freedom for a time, it may feel liberating. It can be incredibly liberating to tell someone off, isn't it? Am I the only one that thinks that? Isn't it incredibly liberating to be like, and another thing, you know, and you're like, oh, I'm finally saying everything I wanted to say. And then afterwards, what happens? You feel like dirt. You feel low. You feel guilty. And then you get even more angry because you feel guilty and they're the ones, you know, they allegedly wronged you. And all that death just comes flowing in, doesn't it? It's funny how sin can feel so good, but it's so, so destructive every single time. So in this case, he says, we put on instead Christ. And he even gave us a picture of what it looks like, the outward behavior of what it looks like. The inward behavior is the love, right? The confession, the invitation to God. And the, the putting on is the outward and walking in the outward behavior of the inward reality. So the inner reality is that I know what God has for me and what he's calling me to, and I'm going to yield and invite that into my life, and I'm going to reject that which I know to be of myself, my own flesh, and of Satan and of this world and its values and ideas. And the putting on is to heed and to listen to what God has for me and then to begin to walk in that. So he says this, let us, not walk or excuse me, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies. I'd be willing to bet that probably everyone in the room here at this point has that one squared away. But check out the bottom, not in quarreling. If there's anything that defines the, the political and unfortunately sometimes the Christian and then sometimes the the, the interaction world that we have with people, it's quarreling, isn't it? Fighting. Not being calm. Not hearing people out. I mean, if you had to pick a word, if I had to pick a word to describe what the internet looks like, it would be this. If I had to pick a word what it looks like, and, and like, I mean, you know, we're all, I don't know if you caught any of the debate. It wasn't a debate. A debate if you go back and, and beyond my years, and you, like, you can watch some old debates on YouTube in the 60s, and for the most part, it was presidential candidates that just had different ideas of how to accomplish the good of the people. We don't have that. That's not what we have today. We have quarreling. That's what we have. It's, it's interesting because when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, hey, look, in the last days, or in Titus, I should say, in the last days, people will be unreasonable. And isn't that what we see? It's unreasonableness. You don't wear a mask, you hate me. And you're stupid. 
You do wear a mask, you're paranoid, and you love the government. Like, really? Can there be something in between? I feel like there can. I feel like I can just want to love my neighbor if that's what I believe, or I feel like I'd like to not get the coronavirus, or I feel like, I, you know, whatever it might be. There can be a million reasons why somebody thinks something or does something. But we have, as a nation and as a world, we become unreasonable. We tweet everything. I don't know how many characters you can have now on a tweet, but it used to be 140. And people try to, like, communicate highly complicated, like, theology or, or psychological realities in 140 characters. When did that happen? Can you imagine if like Socrates had 140 characters? Or any, any philosopher, whether you agree with their philosophy or not, any thinker who ever lived, if they only had 140 characters to communicate truth, what if Jesus had 140 characters? Well, he'd do it because he's Jesus. But for the rest of us, it doesn't work. We're unreasonable. We're quarrelsome. I think some of the years ago, like three decades ago almost, one of the most, one of the best little tidbits I ever heard, I was talking to this pastor guy, and he was just, I don't remember what we were talking about, but he said, you know, James, he said, because I was asking, I think I was asking about pastoring or something, and he said, well, he goes, the, the first two words that every person who ever wants to care about another person, when they talk should be, I understand. And I was like, because now it's like you're doing it wrong. Those are the three words that we use, or four, or whatever it is. I understand. To be able to dialogue with someone and hear someone and listen to what they have to say and not reject what they have to say because your experience is different or whatever. I'm not saying we sacrifice truth. We never sacrifice truth. The truth is the truth, and we don't want to, we're not belaying the truth. We're not minimizing the truth, but we're bringing the truth in love, I hope. And out of a motivation of love, and not just to crush. A two-handed sword can be used to slay quite easily, can't it? And we want to be careful with that. But this is how he says, he says, look, we're to ignore the sexual morality, the sensuality. We're not to be quarreling, we're not to be jealous. All back to, to Acts chapter 12. He says, put your clothes on. Get ready for what I'm about to do in your life. So here's the thing. God wants to do great things in your life. Today, he wants to do great things at the lunch when you're going to sit around with immortal, eternal souls and you're going to have a chance to discuss and help someone to a better eternity and a better day or a worse one. That's one of the things I love about C.S. Lewis. He just makes the statement. He says, all day long, we're helping people to one eternity or to another. And the gravity of that reality of who we are as eternal souls with thought and word and philosophy and theology, we have the power to elevate people to know God and to be a blessing to them. The, the most powerful thing on the planet. But you know what else we can do? We can destroy them. And the crazy thing is we can destroy people with a sentence sometimes. Oh, you really believe that? You really think that? Isn't that terrible? Have you ever been told that? Do you really think that? That comes from this pompous, knowing, I'm better than you. It can crush a soul, can't it? Have you ever had somebody, you're stupid. What you think is stupid. And you go, wow, it's weird, because I've really developed this whole thought of mine I've been sharing for like my whole life. But it's stupid. You don't matter. You and I carry around life and death in our vocal cords and in our minds. And God has great things for you. And the only way to truly walk in those great things is to put off and to put on. To put on Christ. And the longer we delay the putting on of Christ, for whatever good excuse it might be, the longer we will continue to minimize and to, to hinder the building of God's kingdom in our life and the lives around us. But the more that we're willing just to take that step forward and say, okay, okay, Lord, I'm in. Okay, Lord, I, I'm going to put on Christ. I'm going I'm to turn that thought process down. I'm not going to give myself to that. In fact, I'm going to seek help instead. How many promises do we have of, you know, 1 Peter 5, of casting my cares on him because he cares for me? Or James 5, confess our faults one to another and pray for one another. There might be healing. 
And here we are, and God's calling us to these amazing and these great things, and we won't even put on the clothes to be ready for it. And then we're chapped because we're like, my life blows, and it's whatever reason why. When the reality is you control your own life. You control the fruit and what comes out of it. No one on the planet but you controls that. No virus controls that. No law controls that. No assaulter controls that. You control that. And today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you can decide, I'm going to put on Christ. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to confess my anger. I'm going to confess my anxiety. I'm going to confess the things that I let inhabit my mind and my heart that keep me from overcoming in Christ because the only one who keeps me from that is me. I'm the only one. And it's both an incredibly scary reality but an incredibly freeing reality. And so I encourage you, like Peter, throw the clothes on. Get up. Put the clothes on. Get ready for whatever God has for you. At this point, back in Acts chapter 12, you'll note he says, he didn't even think it was real. Sometimes we do that, don't we? We just think, can can there really be deliverance? Can this really be real? Can I really walk out of this prison? Even though he'd been walked out of prison before, even though the, the miracles that happened before, we can still be in a place where we just go, no, no. I was mistreated or I was, I've been gone too long. I've done too much. I've rejected too much. Whatever it might be. You have all the hope in the world today. All of it is yours. All the expectation that God is going to work in your life. Next verse, the second part he says there, uh, and he said in the second part of verse 8, and he said to him, wrap uh, your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him and did not know that the, what was being done with the angel was real, but he thought it was seeing a vision. And the second one is, or the second one for today is this, do what you're told, even when you don't understand. Do what you're told from God, not from me, from God. Do what you're told. What is he telling you to do in your life today? What was the last time that God told you, last thing that God told you to do? See, for, for many of us, myself included, we want to know everything that's going to happen before we go step one. It's funny because my daughter Ava, she's the queen of that. It'll be like eight in the morning, and we're getting ready, you know, they're having breakfast, they're going to start school, and then she'll be like, well, what's for lunch today? And you're like, nothing, if you keep asking. No, I don't say that. I say, what I say is, why do you need to know that right now? Have you had lunch every day of your life? Yes. Do you think you're going to have lunch today? Well, I don't know. Really? I mean, eight years old, that's a lot of lunches. But that's how we are as people sometimes, right? Even though I've had lunch for eight years straight, it's never failed. It might have been late a couple times. It's always happened. But this one day, while I'm eating my breakfast, four hours before lunch, I'm concerned I might not have lunch. Or I'm concerned it might not be what I want to have for lunch. You know, yes, Ava, this is the first time that you will have, you know, rice cakes and Brussels sprouts for lunch with garlic and onions. You're welcome. You know, that's how we feel like sometimes. Like, I know this time. You know, part of you like, I like rice cakes. Well, God bless you on that. <laughs> I like them too, like covered in cheese and other stuff. But as you can clearly tell, the, so that's, that's, that's how we think sometimes. That's how we, he just says, get up and follow me. Follow me. As far as we know, that first gate hasn't been opened yet. According to the passage, get up and follow me. Follow you where? Right into this gate? That's a real smart idea. Where is God calling you to go right now? What is he calling you to do? Don't ignore what he's calling you to do now because you don't know what he's going to do after. Don't ignore, don't ignore like something like forgiveness, right? Forgiveness can be a crazy, crazy thing. Because usually when someone's deeply wounded us, it takes a long time to really forget it. Does that make sense? Like we might deal with it and then say, well... You know, I don't know, I forgive that person, but I'm still kind of angry about it. And there's, forgiveness is oftentimes it's a process. Someone does something to us or has done something to us, and we say, you know what, Lord, I forgive that person. But honestly, a lot of it, a big part of the battle is just moving to that point, isn't it? Moving to the point where you can vocalize to God, you love that person, 
and I forgive them in Christ. And I pray that you would do whatever is the best for them. Whatever that might be, I pray that you do that in their life. And then we go off to our job or whatever, our, our schoolwork, our children, and then something comes back up. Something reminds us of that. Something, something comes across that, whether it be Satan or just an innocent person or whatever it is, and that comes back to us and we go, that's right. Especially if we've been thinking about it for a long time. If we've been dwelling on the wrongs in our life for a long time, it makes it harder to deal with, right? Because we create those thought loops, we create those just neural pathways, quite honestly, is how thoughts work. And so we have to say, no, I'm not going to go down that same path. A neural pathway, honestly, is just where a strong connection has been made in the brain. So when you have a thought, it goes that way. That's what habits are. Habits are highly conductive avenues between two points in your brain, literally what they are. And somehow your soul interacts through that brain. So part of what we're doing in renewing our minds and these things like the Bible tells us to do, yes, the Bible was right 2,000 years ago how to deal with habits and addictions. Part of what we're doing is we're renewing that. We're saying, no, I'm not going to go down through that thought process. I'm going to go through God's thought, pro thought process, and I'm going to invite that into my life. So as, he, as we're called to get up, we don't want to go through that same thought where we go, well, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. We're going to say, no, I forgive. I don't know what tomorrow may hold. I'll probably be angry again tomorrow, but today I forgive. I might be angry again at lunchtime, but at breakfast I forgive. And then when it comes up again, I'm going to deal with it again. When we begin to walk, we're putting on, we're walking, we're, we're responding to what God has called us to do in our life. <clears throat> I think, and I can say for my own self, that many times I think I've missed out in way down here because I did not do what God called me to do here. And, and that's just been just different things in my life. And I'm sure that, uh, I'm not sure, I would venture to guess that many of us have had that same type of experience where God calls us to something here, we said no, and then down here we realized, oh, shoot, if I had said yes back here, then this is what that would have meant. So we miss out. We miss out when we say no. When we, don't, when we say, nope, the gate's shut. There's, why would I bother standing up? Why would I bother following you? Because this gate's not open yet. Plus there's two soldiers out there. And after those two guard, the soldier guards, the sentries, then there's another big giant gate. And there's more sentries between that gate and that. Plus there's sentries on the outside of that gate. There's just no way this can happen. So you know what? No, I'm not following you. I'm taking my cloak back off, I'm making my bed, I'm going to put the chains back on, because at least then I am, I'm comfortable with where I stand. I'm comfortable with what's happened in my life. It's where I've been, I'm going to stay, it is what it is. And we miss out. We miss out on the freedom. If you wouldn't mind, let's flip over to Hebrews. Hebrews 11. It's kind of a famous chapter. If you're not familiar with it, don't feel bad. Uh, I encourage you to read the whole thing. Um, it's, it's pretty tremendous. But I want to look at some of the commentary that's based on uh, Abraham. So in Hebrews chapter 11, and there's a lot more great stories that are in here, but in Hebrews chapter 11, it says there in verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out, of a, uh, go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has a foundation, whose designer and builder is God. And by faith, Sarah received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised." Therefore, from one man uh, and him as good as dead were born descendants as many of the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grand, uh, grains of sand by the seashore. So Abraham, the reason I like this particular passage, they're all great, honestly, well, because they're inspired by the Spirit, but this particular illustration is wonderful because Abraham, honest to goodnessly, is one of the most dysfunctional patriarchs that we ever read about. I know in our Sunday school classes, we just have pictures of him next to a tent and the three guys show up and he's like, let me kill you a goat. You guys are really great. And he says, you're really great too. And we're like, oh, Abraham's really great. Yeah, Abraham didn't obey right away. He says, hey, I want you to take your immediate family and I want you to go to this specific land, the land of the Canaanites. What does Abraham do? He grabs his dad 
and Lot, and he goes to Haran, which is almost due east of Ur. And he lives there for 10 years. And it's not until his dad dies that he leaves Haran. Now, Haran, we know historically, factually, was an epicenter for the worship of their moon god. And it is believed through some different rabbinical scriptures, or not scriptures, probably the wrong word, but writings, that his dad was kind of a mover and a shaker, pretty high up, in the moon god priesthood. So God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to do this crazy movement of faith. I want you to come south to Canaan. And he instead rolls to Haran with his dad and with Lot for 10 years. That's the mighty obedience. After his dad dies, he then leaves and goes to Canaan because the Lord calls him again says, I want you to leave. I want you to go to Canaan. He leaves and he goes down to Canaan with Lot who he was supposed to leave behind. And how does God break up him and Lot? He makes them so dang rich that they just can't live near each other anymore. They get so many cattle, and there's so little in that area where they're at, that Abraham has to look at Lot and say, hey, nephew, we're stinking rich. And we have so much that our herdsmen are fighting over water and grass. So I'll tell you what, you pick the best, and wherever you go, I'll go the other way, because God will take care of me. And so they split ways. Lot picks the, the good of the land, this, this great field, you guys know the rest. And Abraham goes off the other direction. Abraham, there's a famine, he goes, decides to go south into Egypt, twice. Well, once into Egypt and once into, I can't remember, a different land. Both times he sells Sarah, his wife, a man of faith. Can you imagine those conversations? Both times he says, hey, Sarah, literally, you're really hot. And so because of that, that sheik, lord of the land, is going to want you for himself. And he'll kill me to get you. So here's what we're going to do. We are half-brother-sister, which is a little weird for us, but we're half-brother-sister. We have the same dad, different mom. So here's what we're going to do. You just tell them you're my sister. Sarah says, we don't know what she said. That's not recorded for us. But she does it. Twice. Both times. And what an exchange that must have been. When all the cattle and servants and presents are coming to Abraham... And Sarah's walking by that to go into this sheik's tent to be part of a harem. I mean, can you imagine what was on her mind? Like, I'm going to wreck you, Abraham, if I ever get out of this. You know what I mean? Who knows what was going on in her mind? Twice he did that. Man, what a protecting, faithful husband. Then God says, here's the deal. I'm going to give Sarah a child. And it notes it for us. He's impotent, and she's past menopause. And he says... He says, I'm going to give you a child. And they're like, this is great. I'm into this. Some years go by. It doesn't happen. Sarah says, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you take Hagar, one of those Egyptian servants, and go into her, have relations with her, which for us, again, is very weird. For the culture of that area, that was very normal. Uh, even to the point that sometimes the, the surrogate mother, in a sense, would sit on the lap of the wife to give birth. Again, weird for us, different culture. And then as soon as she gave birth, the, the uh, midwife and would be there to have that baby. And then basically the servant was just kind of like, okay, you go over there, and now, we'll, now we have this baby. So weird enough, that causes some strife in the relationship. I mean, who would have thought introducing a second woman into a relationship would cause an issue? And now they have this weird parenting triangle. And not only is the weird parenting triangle where Sarah now hates Hagar and Hagar gets mistreated by Sarah because Sarah has the money in the upper hand and then Hagar begins to despise her and then uh, as Ishmael grows up, he learns, I'm despised. So when Isaac is finally born, then you know, uh, Sarah's like, you've got to kick this lady out. Abraham's like, no, I don't want to do that. And it kind of, all these things kind of just steamroll. Uh, Ishmael ends up mocking Isaac at his weaning party um, again, cultural, we don't have those that I know of. And so then, essentially, 
God comes to Abraham and says, no, you actually have to kick him out. And Abraham's response to that is, oh, that Isaac would live before you. Or I mean, that Ishmael would live before you. Abraham, this man of faith's response to God's promise in his life that Isaac would be the promised child is, I don't want Isaac to be the promised child. I want it to be Ishmael. He's the one that I love. This creates more dysfunction, right, as you go down with, with Isaac and his two kids, Jacob and Esau. The fact that you have this favoritism that occurs between the two boys, and then you have the wife that, that basically plots against Isaac to make sure that Jacob gets the promise, even after God has already promised that Jacob would get the promise. Radical dysfunctionality, right? But we read here, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. So which is it? Did he obey or did he not? And the answer is this is how God records history. It's pretty awesome. Many of us have messed up a lot of stuff. And many of us have gone down some roads that feel like we can't get back. And many of us have committed sins, and those sins are going to have uh, fallout, as Abraham's did, for generations and generations to this day, literally tracing some of the conflicts in this world back to Abraham and his family and how they worked. So sometimes we can never fix everything that we've broken. But that doesn't mean that the commentary of your life in heaven is that you are never redeemable and you're never usable again. Abraham, perhaps one of the most dysfunctional patriarchs ever, is logged as being obedient and faithful. Why? Because he kept coming back to God. He kept following. He kept getting up. He kept listening. He listened to correction. He listened to the Holy Spirit. There was terrible things that occurred because of his disobedience. But at the end, did you read that? Because great things. Therefore, verse 12, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born the descendants, as many of the stars of heaven, as many as, as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. In other words, even using broken people that don't always do the right thing, God accomplishes purpose. He's not done with you today. Freedom is literally a few steps away. Whether, whatever it is that you're looking for, whether it's addiction, legitimate alcoholism or something like that, whether it's just hatred, whether it's fear, it's steps away. But the bottom line is, are we willing to get off our couch? Are we willing to put on the right clothing? Are we willing to follow when it looks like there's no way? Are we willing to invite Jesus into our life again and again and deal with the things that he says are terrible? And if we're willing to do that, there is great joy and deliverance and, I mean, peace. Great things for his kingdom to be, to be part of, to be able to, and I'm not in a, not in a uh, pompous way, but in a, in a humility and as, a, as an innocent child before their father, to be able to come before the Lord on that last day when we meet him and to say, I'm so glad I did your will. To be able to be in heaven and to see people to say, hey, I got to talk to you. Not in a pompous way, like, I saved people, but in a way like, God used even me. God did something through me. To see your children in heaven and say, God used even me. To see your parents, to see the person who works down the street, whoever it might be, because we were willing, we were willing to allow God's grace and his power into our life to accomplish what he said he always would. And that's what it comes down for. It's our choice. You hold your freedom in your hand today. And my encouragement to you is to, to take the step, to move forward. How do you do that? Pray. Be honest. You can pray with us if you want. You can pray with yourself if you want. You can pray with the person next with you want. But to take the step forward to invite God to change your life and to be honest where you're not letting him. And great things are afoot for us. So we have some food, some, I think it's spaghetti, garlic bread. Um, I think Luke talked about the line, but we'll pray, and uh, I think they still have that just wonderful bell uh, back there that they can ring uh, when the food's ready. Until then, 
uh, you know, you're welcome to come up for prayer. So God bless you guys. He has the best for you. Father, thank you for your loving kindness and your great grace. Lord, we're so glad for your word and the promises of it. Lord, help us to be those that uh, allow our conscience to be governed by the Holy Spirit, to receive your input, Lord, to love you and to love our neighbor. Lord, thank you that you have great things for us, that the callings of God are without repentance, the callings and the gifts of God are without repentance. Thank you that no matter how bad we've messed things up, you can still use us for great things. And we want to be part of that. Lord, I pray for your presence and your spirit to go out with us. And Lord, that you lead us uh, in our life's uh, endeavors and dilemmas. Thank you for being so kind. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.